Hi, I'm Dr. D. Leitner, and welcome to The Doctor's Den, where I interview friends and former students to hear their stories, learn from their personal and professional growth, and hear about how they are engaging politics, strategy, and leadership in their everyday lives. So join us as we deep dive into the lives of everyday people and try to learn some important lessons along the way. Welcome to The Doctor's Den. Welcome to the Doctor's Den. Today we are hosting Miriam Weiss, someone who I have known for almost 20 years. Miriam is a senior technical writer at Red Hat. She's been a senior, she's been a technical writer for 11 years. She works for the OpenShift Container Platform Solution. Um, and she's a mom. She has five kids, ages six to 16. She's been writing fiction since she was eight. She loves singing, mixology, and playing Dungeons and Dragons. And as she describes it, she has Hello, ADHD. Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, David. Wow. 20, 20 years? <laughs> that, 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 can't, that can't be right. 20 years. <laughs> Almost 20 years. Jeez. Okay. Um, well, let's start with that. Um, we first met for a play when you tried out. 2005. Oh, 2004. 2005, 2005. 2005. I, mean, I met Shimmy 2004 and meet? then and then Princess Bride was 2005. Was it? Oh man. So I have two more years. Fine. We've been knowing each other yeah. for 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 five for for 18 years. That's almost 20 still. <laughs> okay, that's that's almost um, you said almost 20. You're right. I said almost 20. Right. So we're good. Um yeah, so we've known each other since 2005 then when you tried out for the Princess Bride. Yep. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a really long time. <laughs> wow. Okay. So I guess to start out, um, how'd you get to the position that you're at? Like, what, what, from 2005, <laughs> what happened <laughs> that got you where you are today? I mean, that's like, that's a huge question. Um, I think like so many things in my life... <laughs> You, you can uh, take bits and pieces. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people ask me how I got into technical writing for, you know, to, to start off with, um, because it's like not the sort of career that you wake up one day when you're a little girl and go, hey, I want to be a technical writer when I grow up. No one, no one says that ever. That's not a thing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I, I studied I studied English literature. Um, at Bar-Ilan University, where uh, where we met, and um, and I love literature. I've always loved reading. I've always loved writing. Um, I've always loved picking a story apart. And um, and and you know that standard question: What do you do with a degree in English? Well, not very much. Um, so I uh, yeah. Um, so you know, my I met my husband while. A little bit before I met you, and um, and we both studied English, and we were living near the university, and then we had our our first uh, our first kid, second kid, third kid, and you know you get to a point where you're raising a family, and you have a tremendous amount of knowledge, but not anything useful in the workforce whatsoever, and um, you know we got to the point where where we really needed money, um, you know. Uh, like every major life decision, not every major, but a lot of major life decisions, it comes down to 
we we need more money um so yeah so so uh my husband is more of a he likes to build businesses he likes to he was trying to build up a business at the time and we realized that we needed one person with something really stable um so i had heard about technical writing from a friend i'm pretty sure it was rifka pollock another friend from from uh our our heydays at barilan and um Shout out to Rivka. And uh, and I said, okay, I'll 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 like give this a shot. And there was a great course uh, that um, that was that's run by a, it's still ongoing, run by a company called On Target Communications here, uh, and they do this like three week crash course for just the tools and the basics, and then they set you up with an internship position where you learn on the job for three to four months. And then they're also a placement company and they help you get hired, which is really a dream situation for anyone who wants to go into a new, into a new field. Uh, having someone who has your back, who's really invested in making sure you land a job. Um, but I was like, I was, I was horrified by having to make this decision. I was like, I'm a free spirit. This working a desk job is going to kill me. I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my days. It's going to eat my soul. Like I was, I was like mourning this loss of freedom, this per perceived freedom. Um, and I was like, this is going to be terrible, but I was like, all right, suck it up. Let's, let's go for it. And I remember starting this course and like within the first three days being like, this is not what I thought it was going to be at all. This sounds much more dynamic. This sounds actually a decently creative. It's not just writing. There's so much more going on in the, in the job. And, and I found out later on, that's not everywhere. You know, every, every place has different requirements and things they're looking for from a writer. So you just said something that's actually really interesting to me. Um, you said that it's much more dynamic. Now I have no idea what technical writing looks like. But to okay. me, technical writing is writing <clears throat> black and white pamphlets that like, or like, like instruction manuals, <clears throat> excuse me. And, and, and it is the driest, like, like jargoniest, <laughs> or, or trying to take jargon and make it not jargon, but like everyday person can understand what they have to do, what buttons they have to push in order to make this whatever work right. And I think that, that a lot of people think that that's what technical writing is. Yeah. So could you give a more like, I got slightly broader sure. picture of what this looks like. So, so you're, you're partly right. Um, you, you know, at its core technical writing is documenting, um, how to use something, uh, mainly for high tech companies. Now, everyone will be like, Oh, so you guys write like the pamphlets that come with like your toaster. No, someone does somewhere. I'm sure. But that's, you know, I don't think anyone's hiring a tech writer to do that. Um, it is, you know, when when a, a, a high tech company produces new technology, whether that technology is in the cloud and something you're using as like an application, whether that technology is a platform that is used by other developers for whatever it may be, whether it is uh, 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 something more technical than that, APIs, etc. Don't ask me about APIs. I like, I don't know a lot about APIs. It's not my like area. So like I threw out APIs and I was like, oh no, you shouldn't have said that word. It's fine. Uh, it's fine. <laughs> Um, and someone has to sit down and explain to this end user, this perceived end user, how to use this content. And that can range, you know, that can range anywhere from a, a product that is, at my last company, I worked on 
a, um, uh, uh, an application suite that was intended for workforce management, for managers to manage their employees' time schedules, uh, etc. Uh, it, it had uh, it had quality it had quality assurance elements in there. It had uh, gamification for employees also, and like it was like a whole broad suite of of uh, applications. And so the end user, the person who's going to be using it, we had two. We had you know managers who would be using it at the manager level, and we had the agents, this was for call centers, et cetera, who would be using it. Um, and, and then you have to figure out also, okay, well, who am I writing to? Agents in these call centers, we're talking about people who probably have a high school education, but also possibly not, maybe beyond that. You know, we have to make sure the level of writing is clear and understandable. We want to make sure that, you know, that product in included a lot of UIs, an interface that you see on the computer, you know, so I was getting involved there at an even at a, at a design level with the with the uh, designers to kind of uh, include text and include strings, you know, of text in there that would be as clear as possible and uh, getting involved with like, you know, how are we going to make sure that the CY is as clear as possible so that we don't have to document as much, you know, as when I'm working on a product that is visible that you can see that has a UI. I I would love it if I didn't have to write as much. You know, I, I want to be able to assume that the users are going to be able to figure it out from context. You can't always do that. There are going to be. So the areas that were more complex and complicated would get more. Because you want the. Yeah. No, so like the, the idea you're saying, it sounds really interesting. What you're saying is you actually are suggesting that you want the user interface, the UI, to sort of cut down on what you have to write so that people can learn intuitively or from the actual yep. interface what they need to do rather than having to read a, a, a instruction manual or get instructions in order to do that. Which we get into, no one reads instruction manuals anymore. People want context sensitive help, you know? People want to be like, oh, I'm having problems with this specific thing right now. Sorry, what? <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, uh, it's fine. Um, um, I think that it's really interesting because what you seem to be suggesting is that technical writing has this place in design that it can actually say, hey, wait a second, visual, can you make this something which I don't have to write about so that people can learn about? It? Like you are actually saying, I'm trying to, I want to try and make it as easy for the end user. And sometimes the best way to do that is not to engage technical writing. It's rather to say to the designers, hey, wait a second, guys. This is something you can do visually and it will be better that way, right? Yes, and and I will say that there is actually a, a role called a UX writer. There are people out there who, um, who specialize specifically in writing for user design. Um, it's more niche uh, and very often technical writers fill that gap as well. Um, and it was actually something that I brought to my previous company uh, and started doing there because the technical writers were not involved in the design stage at my previous company um, as much until I started really pushing for it because uh, it, it was bothering me to see this UI that could be so much better, that could be so much clearer, that was inconsistent at times, that, you know, we're, we're, we have the same we have the same process in two different places, but we're using different, you know, names for it for some reason, instead of connecting them. Like it's, it's all this, you know, connecting the dots stuff. So that was 
So that's, that's a really interesting um, thing to get involved in. And you have to have an excellent relationship with your UX designers to be able to do that. You have to have this open conversation because it's their design. They're in charge. This is their area. But when it comes to explaining it or, or figuring out the best words, the, the most precise way to explain something to a user, you know, that's, 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 that's my strength. Um, but that's like, that's only one type of technical writing, you know, not everything has a user interface, you know, now at Red Hat, I work for a, you know, a company that, that develops for developers, you know, it's, it's a platform for development essentially. Um, and, and so it, it was, it was interesting when I, when I left, when I left my last job, you know, I had a lot of different directions I could have gone. And, and one of them was, you know, do I want to do the same thing I've been doing? You know, I've, I've really, I, I, uh, I, I created the global standards for my last company for how to do UI review for the technical writers. I, I got to build our style guide. I flew to Utah with, with, you know, for the company at some point to meet with technical writers there. It was really cool. I got to do some really outstanding stuff that by the way, Tech writers don't usually get to do, um, so that was awesome. Um, and that I could do more of that. Like I'm an expert in that field at this point. And then I was kind of like, all right, you know, I've climbed this mountain. It's been fun. It's been really cool. I kind of reached as far as I could go, unless I want to branch off and just go into a different. You know, I want to go into you know product management or something instead. But this is pretty much it. And then I was like, oh, there's this cool mountain like next door. Let's let's try climbing that one. So uh, so so I went from this area that I knew a ton about into documenting very highly highly technical, more conceptual um, um, documentation for a very very different audience. You know, I wasn't documenting anymore for an agent at a call center. You know, I'm now documenting for a developer at company XYZ who wants to use our platform to develop products for their own company or, or anybody who wants to develop something, um, which is super cool. And, um, and it's much more technical and it's stuff I don't understand. I didn't understand. Okay, I have a question. Um, question goes like this. It seems to me like what you are saying is that a lot of your work is about understanding and really getting into the head of the end user or the consumer of whatever it is you're going to be writing about. And you have to do a lot to do that. Like to be able to understand an end user and a consumer in well enough to be able to speak their language, to be able to to really adapt whatever it is you're writing takes a great deal of 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 effort and skill. How do you find yourself learning about your end users? What is it that you use? What tools do you use or what? skills are you using to do that? And has Dungeons and Dragons or your theater skills or being a, a mom helped you out with like sort of understanding your end user in any way? I'm curious. Um, that's a fascinating question. I mean, it, once you added that last part onto it, that, that was like, ooh, um, because you know how like, I know English. I'm really good at English. This is my forte. And, and growing up in a country that studies English as a foreign language, uh, you know, I, in high school, I'd have friends who'd be like, okay, but like, what is, is this past participle? Is this, and I'm like, I don't know. I just know how to speak English correctly. Like, I can't tell you the why of why I know how to do this. And so this question is kind of, is kind of similar to that. Um, because I will say, I will say that I think that this is, yeah, I will say that this is 
not necessarily a all technical writers know how to do this. I think this is um, my personal forte as a writer is that and, and then you added in like and the Dungeons and Dragons and having kids and it, and yes, yes, it does actually inform that a lot. You know, I, I have always been a very um, creative and um, empathetic person. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by people, you know, I've been, like I said, I've been writing since I was little, I've been reading, I've been, I'm the, 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 the breadth of human experience is fascinating to me and always has been. Um, and you can see it in all of my interests. You know, I went into acting, I write, I like Dungeons and Dragons and creating characters and interacting and role-playing with people. Um, so I think that for me personally, uh, being able to sit down with a product and and understand who my end user is and who the audience is for this product it's always been easy for me personally to kind of put myself in those shoes and say okay what is what is this user going to need to know what are their pain points going to be you know sitting down and and this is not red hat specific or or any like specific, like this is just if I sit down in front of a piece of documentation, and this has happened to me before, I've, I've been thrown into a brand new project that I'm unfamiliar with, which by the way is the best. That's when you're new at a, at a, at a working on a project and you don't know anything about it, that's your purest kind of coming into something and being like, okay, I know nothing. So now I get to look at what is here already at the documentation and I can go through this and be like, well, wait, if that's that way and this is this way, these don't, I'm missing, that's where you can spot the gaps really, really well as, as a dummy user, you know, I'll use the, I, I don't love, I don't love that term because, you know, I don't want to call anyone a dummy or anything like that, but I've been a dummy user more than once and it's an incredibly useful experience. So, so even going into, you know, a new project, um, like at Red Hat, for example, where it was not just a new product, a new company, it was also a new area of documentation that I never worked on before. It was highly technical, and I'm not a highly technical person. Um, but when I sat down to look at the existing documentation for this product I was going to be working on, the specific part of it, I didn't know what they were saying, but I knew that a lot of how it was being said, and it was brand new, it was, it had been written by developers, it hadn't even gone through tech writing yet. So I'm not like throwing anyone under the bus here or anything like that. But I knew looking at it that how it was being said was definitely not right. You know, there's a story being told in documentation. There's a story being told there of, of you can see the steps generally in a, in at least in a big, in like in a, in a, in a macro way. Um, and if that's missing and you're not clear how you get from point A to point B, then something's wrong and that's where you have to start figuring it out. So so it's kind of a whole bunch of things aggregated together. Uh, yeah. You just said that you use storytelling in your technical writing. How? So again, it's storytelling. It's not storytelling. Like it's not once there was, you know, a, a boy and he wanted to do this and he, but it's, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Any, anything, when, when you have something when you have documentation, you're, there's a story. You're starting at a point where you don't know how to do this thing. And you end at a point where you do know how to do this thing. And the, the story is the process in between. And it has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. It has the most important points 
within the story that you have to make sure that you don't miss the points that that are that are are necessary for the story to continue or you can't get you can't move on to the next part of it there is a flow and and that is a story essentially you know you you there are points that you can't miss and and they have to happen in order chronologically you know um so so there is a story to it and uh and how it's told is 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 important that's really cool um all right so I'm, I want to just take a, a, a slight turn from here. I know that some of the places you've worked have had different environments. Like you've had open workspaces, you've had office spaces, you've had your own like office, whatever. Um, what is it like in, in, in working in the field in different, like these kind of different environments? And how have you experienced that? Because if I remember correctly, there was a point where you were like, this is driving me nuts. And I don't remember exactly what happened. So I would love to learn a little bit about that from you. Okay. So that's like intrinsically linked to how I found out I had ADHD and how I got diagnosed actually. Um, so it's a funny story. Uh, I have worked in a, in a wide variety of, um, of work environments. Um, when I started out, I was working in, um, in, a, in an office space with like three other people, um, with, you know, we all were facing like circular. So our screens were all facing outwards. Everyone passing by could see it always stresses me out having anyone being able to look over my shoulder. I think that's a common, everybody feels that way, but like, it was like very stressful. Cause you're always like, Oh my God, Oh my God. I have to at any given moment, like make sure that I, you can see that I'm working, you know? Um, and, uh, and then we moved to uh, another place and I shared an office with one other person. That was like the golden age of documentation for me. Like those years where it was just me and another person in an office in our own space. Like that was, that was amazing. Like it was quiet. It was, you know, you could have one-on-one -on -one meetings. You could have, that was great. Um, and then they moved all of us into an open space floor and I was freaking out. I was like, I was losing it. I was really stressed about this again, because I feel deeply uncomfortable with people looking over my shoulder at any given moment. Like it raises my stress levels. I know I get my work done. I know I get it done well in a timely manner. I know I get a lot of work done. Um, but there's always this like, and I'm not going to get into why I get stressed about this. It, it's deeply connected to my childhood and we're not in a therapy session here. So we're not going to get into it, but this is like my personal stuff I deal with. And this is like a big stress factor for me. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So I was actually at the time, um, and here's a big shout out to therapy. I love therapy. I think it's important. Everybody should go. I'm super big on mental health people. So just so you know, um, I was seeing a therapist at the time because um, my oldest son was approaching his bar mitzvah. And I was a wreck. I was so stressed out. Like I was so stressed out that I, I had started breaking out in like stress rashes on a regular basis. It was not good. Um, wow. And, and wow. I was like, just, yeah, yeah. Like I was so overwhelmed. I don't think I'd ever been that overwhelmed in my life. And so I started seeing a therapist mainly to deal with stress, whatever. And I was still seeing her when we got this news that like that was handled. And we found out that we we're going to be moving to open space. And I was like talking to her about it. I'm just like, and I'm so free. I'm really stressed out about it. I'm freaking out about it. I don't know what to do. And she looks at me and she's like, well, why don't you just get a letter from your doctor saying that you have ADHD? Because, you know, that kind of environment is not conducive to you being able to work. And I looked at her and I'm like, but I don't have ADHD. And I swear it was like watching her life flash before her eyes. Like in that moment, she got this look of just, oh, no. <laughs> like, 
Like that was like, it's frozen in my brain. <laughs> this look of, we have so many more issues than I thought we had. And, and I went home and I remember being like, it was such a weird thing for her to say to me. Like, why would she say that? And I started like doing every single possible online quiz, which is not an accurate way to diagnose anything. But I was like, you know, let's start from here for ADHD. And they were all like, oh, honey, like every single one of them was like, oh, no. So I went back to her and I sat down and I'm like, so, okay, um, I think I might have ADHD. And she goes, mm -hmm. we should, we should, we should take care of that. It's like, so that was like the beginning of the process. Um, and, uh, and, and, and yeah, like I went to get diagnosed with a specialist and, and it's a two hour session and 45 minutes into it, she's like, look, I have to ask you all the questions. Like we have to finish it up, but there is no doubt in my mind <laughs> that you have ADHD. And, and I was like going around to all my friends afterwards be like, apparently I have ADHD. And they were like, oh, you, you didn't know. So, so this was a like, secret only know? to uh, my entire life. I didn't know. I didn't know. Everybody else knew. I didn't know. They all just thought I was like on it. Um, yeah. So, so that was been, that was like a Hold on, 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 hold on. I did not think that you were, I don't think most of us thought you were on it. I think most of us thought that you were, you had chosen to enjoy because a lot of people, no, a lot of people, a lot of people who have ADHD don't want to take medication. They don't want to take stuff because it, it dampens so much of the creativity and it, it makes them feel down and it, it does so, so many no, different things no, to no, them. No, 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 that, like, no, no. Okay, here's like. where we're going to get into, so, so here's where we're going to get into fights about this because I have, I have, I have so much to say on that specific subject about dampening anything. I'm not going to fight no, no, no. you. I, I'm not going to fight you. I'm going to tell you what, no, no, no. what I've heard from people. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I'm not going to fight, but, but this is, this has become a huge, this has become a huge passion about me, uh, for me, educating people about exactly this. Um, so wait, let me, let me like finish. I'm going to ADHD here for a second. I'm going to finish the other thing and we're going to go on to this thing. So, um, so that was like a whole process of beginning to learn like, okay, how does this affect me? Uh, why, like, places that I was having trouble with, it, 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 how can I improve my own work skills and, and processes, which I was a much bigger wreck at my job. I was good at it, but I was not organized or, like, you know. Um, and I started this whole learning process of, okay, what does this mean? How does this affect me? What does this mean for my brain? You know, finding those places where I struggle and recognizing them and why and finding systems to work around it. Um, and then we hit COVID and everything went to shit. Uh, so I hated working from home. I never liked doing it. it, it I liked my space. I liked my environment. Um, and, uh, and suddenly I had to be at home all the time. And that was a disaster. I don't want to get too much into it because it was not only the work from home that was a problem. It was my entire life fell apart. Uh, my husband worked in tourism um, and that was like really difficult and I was the only income and like I said, we're a family of seven. Um, it was really rough. Um, and over time I developed, you know, I've, I've gotten used to working from home now. At this point I work almost exclusively from home. Um, 
also because Shimmy, my husband, has now also gone into technical writing and they want him in the office three days a week and it's really hard to manage uh, with the kids and with everything if you know we both have to be balancing. And luckily I work in an environment that is, even pre-COVID had uh, a policy, that they were very open to people working remotely even pre-COVID. You know, they recognized that for some people that was just better and it was easier. And, you know, I know that there was someone working in Malay Adumim who, were, who would come into the office in Renana once a week before COVID, you know, like, cause you, how are you gonna drive from Malay Adumim to Renana every day? Like, that's crazy. Um, and that's like, like always been their policy. So when it shifted into COVID and work from home, Red Hat was super on it. They were like, Okay, we've got the infrastructure for this setup already. As it is, all of our teams are super international. You know, they're all made up of, of people from all over the place. We were having remote meetings already. Like, this is nothing new. So that's really fascinating how they, were, how they managed to get through that as opposed to, like, a lot of other companies. Um, and, uh, and, and even now, like, they'd love for people to come back to the office, but there's no pressure. It's like, look, you want to work from home, work from home. You want to, like, it's, it's a really great, I'm very lucky to have that freedom and to be able to choose that way. So I'm like, I'm super grateful. As long as um, you're being productive so, and doing so the things you need to do, right? That's, that's the, that's very the line. Much, as long as much. you're doing the things you need to do. It's very much the line is, yeah. You, you, they're very task oriented. Like, you know, it's, it's, I work for the Israeli offices, so it's much more, you know, you have to clock your hours, you have to, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning now about business practices in other places in the world, you know, like most of my team is in Ireland. Uh, you know, it's, it's different there. They don't, they don't clock hours. It's a universal, you know, it's just, a, it's just the, 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 the hours you have and you do them. And it's like, it's very interesting. Um, but yeah, I, I, as long as you you get through the work you need to do and and um, and you do it well and you and you're on top of it and it's and I appreciate that because that's very much you know I, I think it's more productive in general to to approach things that way, um, but yeah. So on the subject of ADHD, unless you have something else you want to say, no, no, ADHD is great. I I want to hear your take on this because I think it's very important. So it's been, it's been fascinating learning. Um, I, when I first got diagnosed, so funny, funny story. The first one in my family to get diagnosed was actually Adir, my middle son. Um, and, um, and, and we started him on meds and they were okay. Like whatever, you know, same, same, this is what the doctor prescribed and, you know, he's having trouble paying attention. So we have to help him pay attention. I got diagnosed and I, and it was so weird for me because I was like, but I was never that kid in school who couldn't pay attention. I got great grades in high school. We're not going to talk about college, whatever. But in high school, I was like doing fantastically. And, um, and, and so I suddenly had this disconnect of, but this is what I thought this was all this time. Where was I wrong? And I started researching because whenever I get interested in something and this is where the ADHD comes in, I deep dive into that so far that like, I I know so much random stuff about so many different things, David, and this is my whole life. Um, <laughs> so I came across this fantastic, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> seriously. Um, I came across, it, it's the things that stick around over a number of years where you're like, okay, this is, this is a real passion that has stuck. The other ones were passions for a while, not to say they weren't real, but you know, they come and they go, they flare and they're out. Um, so, so, uh, uh, there was this fantastic psychiatrist named, uh, Dr. Russell Barkley, 
And if and if you can give him a give like give him a listen, he's unbelievable. He has a great series of videos. It's it's one lecture, and because he knows who his audience is, it's one lecture split up into tiny bite-sized five to ten minute chunks. So you can watch them in your own time. Um, and um, and he's talking about the the theme was if I could only tell parents 30 things about ADHD for their child, like what would I want them to know? And it's this unbelievable lecture that was incredibly eye-opening um, and and was where I started understanding more of what this means that, you know, ADHD, I think the worst thing that ever happened to people with ADHD was them naming it ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactive Disorder. Um, it's not an attention disorder. It impacts attention, but at its core, it is an executive function disorder. The area of the brain that develops executive function develops differently than people who do not have ADHD, and that impacts a wide range of things in their lives, anything having to do with executive function. Yes. Okay, we need to define executive function for anyone who's listening. Can you please give me a one sentence? Executive function is the ability to do A, B, C, D, E. So executive function is not quite the ability to do ABC, ABCD, and I'm going to, because, because, because uh, I want to give you an accurate, like proper, uh, okay, it's a set of skills, right? And they underline the capacity to plan ahead, to meet goals, to display self-control, uh, follow multiple step directions. Like it's a whole, it's, it's basic cognitive processes of the brain. Um, and, and these are necessary for cognitive control of behavior. I'm looking at Wikipedia here to give you the most correct, you know, so some of these, so yeah, so the basics here, and I'm going to give you the list because I always forget a couple. So, uh, control of attention way up there. That's one of the executive functions, a cognitive inhibition, your ability to, your stop motion of, nope, I'm not going to impulsively do this thing. I'm going to inhibit myself from doing this thing. <laughs> Garbage, not there. Um, and inhibitory control, working memory. That thing that tells you to go back to doing the thing you were doing before you went off and did another thing. So like, hey, this is, this is so you have you know trouble regulating your attention. This is where really it impacts kids in school. So, oh, okay, I've been paying attention to the teacher. I'm paying attention, paying attention. Ooh. This interesting thing just caught my attention. That little voice in your head that says, hey, remember you were listening to the teacher, you should get back to that, doesn't exist. It's not there. I mean, it, it, uh, it exists, but in very low, low, low levels. Um, so that's working memory. Uh, other things, things that, you know, basic executive functions include ability to plan, you know, project planning, uh, time management, time blindness is a huge issue, a, a total, I don't understand time. For me, there is now and there is later. And if it doesn't have to be done now, it can be done later. But later is like an hour before it needs to be done. It's like whatever. So it, this becomes difficult. It's like at some point in the future. <laughs> but but there's, no concept, there's no concept of time. It's that thing that you're like, oh, I need to be at the doctor in half an hour. I can fit in another 45-minute episode of my favorite show before I need to be there for sure. which I've literally done before. I've been like 45 minutes and I need to be there in half an hour. That hurts. <laughs> uh, I know how long it takes to, I know how long it takes to cook dinner. I can cook dinner. I can cook dinner in 15 minutes. It'll be fine. It's a, it's an hour long recipe. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. So all of these, all of these executive functions are developed in the 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 frontal regions of the brain, um, and they're and and so ADHD is an executive function disorder. All of these different executive functions are impacted by this. Executive function is it's it's uh, it's quantitative. It's like height. You know, people are taller, people are shorter. You know. Same thing with anybody, anybody with ADHD or without ADHD. You all have executive function and, and the different ones also, not the same, each one to the amount that you have it. Um, some people have more of one, some people have less of another. People with ADHD are starting at the complete bottom end of the scale on all of those. And then even between people with ADHD, there are differences. Some people have more of one, another. I, I struggle tremendously with emotional dysregulation. Uh, which is a cognitive, which is a, an executive function, your ability to inhibit your own, to, to control emotions, to control emotional outbursts, uh, how you feel emotionally about something. I can go from zero to 60 in a second. I'll suddenly be super overwhelmed and it's, and it can be explosive. Um, and it's been hugely healing and helpful to understand that and find the ways to curb that. You know, Shimmy, who is also now diagnosed as an adult, um, uh, yeah. I have two questions, and and then I wanted to get back to how how you're dealing with it. And these are questions about how you're dealing with it. The list of things you said, I one of the things I taught at Barilan was um, as part of my course, and then also outside of my course to friends or to people who are interested, was like productivity. Like I gave a whole lecture. It was basically a lecture in two parts. One was, you know, about setting goals in life and about monetary goals and things like that. But the other one was a whole bunch of stuff I'd learned while working like on my PhD, things that I learned right at the beginning that were very important. Um, the Eisenhower matrix, how to determine what's important and urgent, what's important and put it in a schedule. And I learned about uh, time boxing. I learned about all these different like tools that you can use in order to sort of remove some of that weight from the brain because when you're trying to do research and you're trying to write and you're trying to do this and do that, it gave a sense of order to my life. How are you using, are you using tools and what tools are you using? Um, and I'd also like to discuss medication, but I want you to continue in your own flow. But if you could address those things, that'd be great. Oh, they're coming. Don't worry. Um, you're good. Uh, okay. <laughs> yes. So, um, so it's different with everybody um and everybody has their own because i'll i'll be talking about my experiences and someone will be like well i have trouble with that also we all have trouble with that you may it's possible most women over 40 by the way working memory starts to to go like it's it's a very standard thing um especially if you've had children every baby your working memory just gets chipped away a little bit more that's it um so when you start out with almost none to begin with oh lord um yeah. So, uh, um, sorry, the, the, I lost my flow and I'm actually currently off Ritalin cause it wore off for the morning and I haven't, I haven't re-upped yet. So I'm like, I'm like, it's okay. It's battered. okay. I'm going to get you back on um, flow. You were talking about, you were talking about executive function. I got you. You were talking about executive function and we went, you were started to talk about shimmy getting diagnosed. You were bringing it into a discussion right. about, oh, right, right. about how, Harrison. how you guys were dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah, so everybody has, everybody struggles with different things. Shimmy, Shimmy's emotional regulation is fine. His time blindness is like the worst I've ever seen. And mine is also bad, but but I've started to really work hard to to correct for that. So how what tools? How do you how do you work through this? I mean, it has to start with an understanding of these are the ways, 
that this impacts my life. Um, these are my areas that I am always going to have a harder time with than the average Joe. And, and there's a big part for me personally, at least that was important, which was beginning to heal and to, uh, forgive myself for my life basically, because there's this thing that happens when you have ADHD, um, and it's undiagnosed where you grow up and yeah. I, I, that's gotta, I mean, just, I, I, I don't want to cut you off, but at the same time, that's gotta be such a difficult realization to come to the realization that, Hey, there's been this thing wrong with me all my life. And I've been blaming myself or I've been getting blamed for not being able to do these things. And it is tremendously impactful and hurtful. Yeah. So I'm going to, I'm going to just tweak. It's not this thing that was wrong with me. It's just this thing that was different. Um, that wasn't the standard expectation. Um, 100%, I apologize. You are correct. I apologize. Yeah, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. I'm just going to, to, to like, you know, accurate as a technical writer, I'm a fan of accurate language. Um, and, uh, and, and, but there's this thing that happens when you're undiagnosed with ADHD and it's a very common experience. I think most people who got diagnosed later in life and have started to understand what this means. Well, will, I've heard a lot of people talk about the same experience and it's this, um, expectations and constant failure to meet expectations. It's, the you have so much potential we see so much potential that you're not fulfilling it's the why are you so lazy why can't you just do this and and there's this backwards understanding of i'm not lazy i severely struggle with getting started on projects unless someone helps me just a little bit unless someone gives me an in a project to me feels like an enormous jumble of 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 tasks that I can't even begin to pick apart. I need to start much smaller than that. Um, and so when I just can't, oh, you're being lazy or you have so much potential, you're not fulfilling. Somehow this is my fault. I am failing to meet expectations that aren't reasonable because the world is not presenting those expectations in a way that are accessible to me. Um, and so this backwards kind of looking back and being, I spend my, I spend my whole life constantly being like, why is this so easy for everybody else? Why can't you just do this thing, Miriam? Why can't you just do what you're supposed to do? This constant yelling at myself my whole life. And it was a hugely healing experience to start to look backwards and be like, you were doing the best you could with the tools you were given, which were not many. You were not given many tools at all. And all things considered, I did really, really well. And that was very healing on its own. Um, but um, so, so that's one thing. Um, and then once I started understanding again, specifically where those points of difficulty were, that was where I started being able to, you know, remembering appointments, something really basic, really simple. Okay. I was forever constantly missing kids, dentist appointments, uh, uh, uh kids, uh, um, um, uh, 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 oh my God, my brain doctor's appointments, anything that was scheduled for this or for that, or it was, it was a constant, like any meetings, all meetings, anything, I was constantly forgetting about them. And it was, it was always, I was always in a state of panic. People are like, well, just write them down in a, in a scheduler. I'm like, I don't open, I'm not gonna open a book every day to check. Like that's not even in my brain to do, that's not. And now I recognize I, I, I need an external hard drive for everything. 
understanding how my brain works. It's not just everything goes into, into my Google planner and I have alarms set a day before, half an hour before, and 10 minutes before, because yes, half an hour before I get the alarm, but then something distracts me and then I forget about it. I do need a 10 minute before alarm to remind me once again that I need to do this thing. I have timers for things. If I'm if I'm like, if I'm in the middle of something and I suddenly remember something else I need to do, I used to be like, okay, I'll remember to do it later. No, I won't. I won't. I can't expect myself to. That's not fair to me. My brain is literally not built to remember this later when I need to remember it. So I will pull my phone out and I will set an alarm for a time when I know I will be available to do this thing. And it, and without fail, it goes off and I'm like, oh, right. I totally forgot about this thing. Good, I set an alarm. Like, But I know to do that now because I don't have the unreasonable expectation on myself that my brain's supposed to work the way everybody else's works. It doesn't. Um, so that's like one system that's been really hugely helpful for me. It seems to me like what you're talking about right now is almost like a dynamic form of time boxing. Time boxing is like you start your day and you know how your day is set up. You have things set in schedules. I use alarms also just to remind me, hey, in about 15 minutes, you're supposed to transition from this thing to that next thing. Um, that's how I use time boxing alarms. But there's also spaces in my box, in my schedule, which are empty. And you're saying it's a very dynamic thing. Instead of just having, knowing at the beginning of the day, here's what I'm gonna do. You're using time boxing as a mechanism to actually put something into your schedule. When you go, I need to remember to do this. I'm going to actually schedule an appointment with myself for later to do this thing so that I don't get distracted from what I'm doing now. Is that an accurate description of what you just said? That is absolutely correct. Um, I don't need it for work because for work, I have to, I have to, I don't function otherwise. I do not function as a human being otherwise. Um, and, and I, and everything gets dropped as it is. Things get dropped like that. Things get dropped because sometimes I forget to put something in my phone. I still sometimes fall back on the, you know, the old standard and I don't start my day knowing what I have to do a lot of the time. You know, I, I have a lot of trouble visualizing the future and looking ahead. Um, that that's something that, that I struggle with a lot. And, uh, and so I rely a lot on past me to have set me up for success. Um, and there's a certain level of trust involved there that I really have to, you know, like, like my daughter broke her arm a few months ago and she's had regular checkups with the orthopedist. And, uh, when we go to the orthopedist at the hospital, we have to get a special, a special form from, uh, from our healthcare provider in advance to make sure that they're covering it before we, we go. And so I don't only have an alarm set for when her appointment is, I have an alarm set a week and a half before that to sit down and send in the paperwork to get that form ready. And if I don't remember to do that, the moment it, it's on my plate, the moment I leave her, her appointment that I just had, I have to do that right away or I will forget. So the moment I walk out of her appointment, I'm already putting in the next one and the date that I have to get that form in in advance. And I have to be able to rely on past me that I set up that system for myself in the future because otherwise everything falls apart. Um, so that's like one thing, for example. With work, you know, I have my Google Calendar. We, we work with, you know, like, and I have all of my, my meetings are set up and everything's set up and, and anything that's regular, you know, sync meetings that are regular, the ones I have every every week, like those I know, they're in my head, those are standard part of my everyday life. That's very hard to forget, but it's those one-time things that come up 
that uh, that fall apart. And so I can go into a day and I have no idea what I need to do that day. You know, I kind of like get my kids out and that's my only focus in the morning is just get them out to school. And then I kind of stand in my in my dining room while my brain tries to catch up, you know, with the rest of me and and kind of look around and go, okay. Uh, and there are days where I can't. There are days where you know, executive function differs from day to day as well with anybody. If you don't get enough sleep, if you've just finished a really enormous project and you're you're on that downward, you know, after post project, um, any anytime something very big emotionally has happened, I can generally expect the next day to two days. I'm not going to function. I'm really going to struggle. I, I, I call those days 14 step coffee days. Those are the days where I don't get into my kitchen and I just have to make myself coffee. It's I can't make myself coffee unless I break it down because it's too big a task. I need to fill the urn. I need to set it to boil. I need to take out my mug. I need to get down the coffee. I need to take out a spoon. I need to. I cannot even approach the concept of making a cup of coffee on days like those unless I break it down into the tiniest, most simplest of tasks. My brain cannot handle it. And so I have days like those as well. And those are days where I just have to kind of look at myself and look at my life and say, today nothing's going to get done. And that's okay. Because tomorrow you'll be super functional and, and you'll make up for lost time. Um, and, and that's like the other, that's another tool I use is just self-understanding and, and, and forgiveness and allowing, allowing myself to stop when I need to stop, when I, when I can't push myself further. Um, my brain has limitations. It's a superpower. Like, listen, when I need to get something done and I have a deadline coming up, I don't think I've ever seen anybody work as efficiently or as quickly or as lightning fast as my brain goes. Like it is, it is unbelievable to me. And I've lived with this brain since I was born. Like it is amazing. But the counterpart of that is the crashing and the burning. So, you know, yeah. All right. Um, you mentioned something which I think is really interesting, and I want to talk about it for a moment. Um, it's actually something that neuroscience actually talks about uh, as, as a concept. It's the idea that when you get to the end of a project, there's this lull afterwards, and a lot of people will try and do something to keep up the dopamine and keep up the the, neuro, uh, the neural transmitters that will like keep up that feeling and do something else to do that feeling. But you're saying you're saying and the it, you're saying is something very correct, which is accept that you're going through this downward sweep and you will get back up to a point of of neural balance and then you can challenge yourself with that next big challenge but if you try and continue fighting for that neural hit of more dopamine and more um more what's it called it starts with an o and i don't even remember right now um you know like it's just not going to work and your body won't function as well so that's a very interesting i mean it's a huge tip i think for anybody especially someone who has adhd because when you are dealing with that i need to keep pushing i need to keep pushing environment to be able to say wait a second i've i've had i've had success I, I i can v this and now i need to allow my body to rebalance itself i think that's really really important um but there's a there's like a second side to that which is while you're doing that that's normally the time that people would sort of 
think about what they're going to be doing next and planning it out and sort of without it being stressed because they know that they need this period of recoup. And you're saying, I cannot do that. So at what point? No, no I, it's split up into two parts. It's, it's what you're saying. It's split up with me. It's not on the downwards. I have to, I, I have to give myself the time to not head empty. Nothing. Like I can't, like I really, I get to the point, depending on how intense a period has been, I literally get to the point where I can't make coffee. Like this is where I'm at. Um, maybe the next day. I can start thinking about what the next step is or what I'm doing after that. And yes, it is an important part, but I, I can't do both because, because having to plan ahead is an exact planning is an executive function. And, and I, 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 I don't, I have them. I have executive functions, but in very minute amounts and I have to use those resources very sparingly. And, uh, and I can't, I can't push myself. And before I understood this, and I always had the dip, I always had the crash afterwards, but I get terrible anxiety because I'd be sitting there not doing anything. And I'd be like, but I have to be doing, I have to be doing something like what, what's wrong with me? Why can't I, what's wrong with me? And I get terrible anxiety attacks um, as a result. And, and this has been very, nope, take your time. I, I, I want to talk about just for a moment. I, I, there's a tool that I use, which I, I have not been diagnosed with ADHD, but I have as we both know, severe chronic pain, which is no fun. And it's something which it makes my life very difficult in terms of the amount of energy I can bring to any number of different things. Um, and I'm going to talk D and D for a minute here because it probably a, deeply impacts your executive function as well. The pain. Um, yeah, it does. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty good with decision-making and planning and things like that. My problem is more like now that I've got the plan, my body goes, yeah, you planned really well, but you don't have the capacity to actually do that plan. Um, because your body, my body goes, um, you're in too much pain. You've done a great job. You have objectives. You've got goals. You've time blinded it. You've time boxed it. You know exactly what you have to do. You know everything. That's just great planning. Great, great executive function. Now go do it. And my body goes, no. <laughs> and I end up like sitting on a, on a, on a recliner going, why is my body not working? I need to go make dinner. Um, or whatever. Um, but, um, one of the things that I have used as a tool for myself to sort of explain um, explain this and also to give myself a sense of where I'm at in terms of my energy level, my ability to get things done, um, is actually a D&D function. I use um, HP and exhaustion points as a way to describe um, the amount of pain that I'm dealing with or the amount of energy drain that I've had. And then I use exhaustion. using this. And then I use exhaustion points as a way to describe how I'm rolling right now, right? So I wake up in the morning and I, let's say someone has 120 exhaustion I, I use I use spell slots. Okay, so it's a similar idea. So, so the way I, I use it is as follows. I say I have 100, let's say I wake up with 120, a person, a normal person who doesn't have pain wakes up with 120 hit points and no exhaustion points after a long rest after they've slept six to eight hours. What level are you at? Oh, I'm, I'm like, come on, I'm a PhD. I'm 45 years old. I have three children. All the, you're lady, you're like 150. You got like 150 hit points. What are you talking about? Come on. <laughs> You've got five kids. That's like automatic. I'm like 60. I'm like 60 hit points, David. I'm like 60. 
I, okay, so I used 120. Like normally, I you know I agree with normally I would use 60, but I like 120 because it lets me break down. Like instead of having to say I lost a half of a hit point, like getting gently rubbed, like gently tapped by someone, and it's it's not a full hit point because it wasn't that bad, but it was bad enough that it like took off a little bit of like it was like that. Okay, but like I used 120, so like each hit point is the equivalent of a half of a hit point. Let's call it like that. Anyway, the point the way I play it is as follows: every 20 hit points. I'm gonna get an exhaustion point. There's just no way around it. If I'm walking around and I've already lost 20 hit points, I'm already rolling badly in some way, shape or form. And exhaustion points have different kind of roles to them, right? Your exhaustion points, your first thing you get yeah, yeah, is yeah. that your, you know, your reaction rolls are gonna be bad. And then your action rolls are gonna be bad. And then, and then your this is gonna be bad. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden you're in half movement and then all of a sudden you're stuck in bed and then all of a sudden you're dead. <laughs> this is the best analogy. Listen, it's so good. Oh. I know. So I use this as a way to describe where I'm at right now, both in terms of how much pain am I dealing with, how much energy and pain has been taken away from me through pain through dealing with taps and touches and moving around and bumping on my legs and trying to make you know tensies for my kids and trying to get through my day and teaching and teaching is a huge energy drain for me because i hold in the pain right and then afterwards I'm, i have this moment of like oh, okay so now i can let it go but but i fall apart afterwards because like all of a sudden i've lost it's like i've held in these i've been holding these hit points and then all of a sudden it's like you've lost 30 hit points in one shot here you go um and all of a sudden I go from, you know, I'm not rolling so well because I've been holding it in to, oh my God, I can't even move. <laughs> I'm in half movement. Don't expect me to go fast right now. So I use this as an analogy for myself, but I'm, I, oh, I guess what I'm curious about, and I think you're trying to answer it anyway, but I'm going to ask the question, is, is this analogy similar to what it is you experience in terms of executive function, where like you have a certain number of hit points in your executive function basket. And then as you go through using those hit points, you like go through and like suddenly you can't work as well and you're rolling worse and worse and worse to the point where half movement, you're kind of stuck and then you need to rest. And what's horrible about hit point, about exhaustion points is a full rest won't necessarily give you a full, you know, your all your exhaustion points are back. It might give you an exhaustion point back. It might give you two exhaustion points back, but it, it's not giving you everything, right? It takes a few full rests to get back to the point where all of your exhaustion points are back and you have to really rest. So, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, I don't think it's, it's the same one-to-one. -one. Um, yours is, I think your, for you, it's a, it's a very physical immediate trigger. Um, and I think with my brain, it's, a little bit different. Um, I think that looking at it at on a on a larger scale uh, over the course of time instead of in a single day, yes, it one hundred percent applies. And then sometimes in a specific day, you know, I never know. Like something might pop up that hits me really hard. You know, that could be something very emotional that I suddenly find out, or that could be discovering last minute that I forgot to do a thing and having to scramble to go do it really, really quickly. Um, that could be um, um, uh, forgetting to take meds at a certain point when I knew I was really gonna need them for whatever reason. It could be a whole bunch of different things. And in those cases, 
Yes, for sure. This is not something that necessarily happens every single day, um, but it, it can. Like the, the option is there. Um, you know, so if, if, you know, I suddenly realize I totally forgot to do something and I have to break concentration on what I was deeply focused on and run and do that in a scramble and stressed out about it, when I get back, I will be less functional for the rest of the day. Absolutely. Um, like that's just, that's just hit and that's, that's it moving forward. Um, you know, but like, like you, you were talking about teaching, for example, and how you, you, you push through it for that moment and you get all of the, you collect everything you got and you, and you, and you work with that. I've had times like that also I'll have a bad brain day and I'll have to run a team meeting for, you know, whatever reason. And I'll get into the team meeting and I'm obviously, obviously, you know me, already known as like the biggest extrovert in our entire team. Um, and so like I'll run a team meeting and, and I'll be all over the place and I'll be super energetic and I'll be, you know, interesting and, and waving my hands around. And afterwards, my friend will message me and be like, I can't run team meetings because everyone's going to expect me to do what you're doing. And I'm not going to, I'm like, no one expects anybody else on the team to do what I do. I think we all know me well enough at this point that like, whatever, but then I'll finish the meeting <laughs> and that's it. I like, <laughs> yeah. And that's it. I like pulled the last amount of reserves I had to maintain that. And then I'm dead for the rest of the night, you know? And, and my, my, like everything takes a hit. The household takes a hit. My kids take a hit from it. Um, I think what, what saves me and us, us all is we're super open about it. We talk about it. They all suffer from the same issues. You know, we are a family of people with ADHD who deeply understand what that means, which actually makes us a very highly functional family with ADHD. Cause there's a lot more understanding and making space for that. But, you know, like I said, it also means you're very accepting of each other. Yes, absolutely. Super accepting, like super accepting of each other. And that gives you guys the room to to care and acknowledge each other and be able to say, I know where you're at. It's OK. I've got this right now. I'm at a point where I can deal and I see that you can't. And we can like it allows you to better cover for each other because you have that mutual acceptance. So so Shimmy and I do that for sure. But even more than that, my kids know how to express that. I've taught my children how to express that. You know, um, Adir, my middle my middle son, he has a lot of trouble um, with emotional dysregulation sometimes. And he can recognize when that's happening. He's 11. He's 11 and he can come to me and say, I'm having a really rough time right now. I need some time alone in my room and I, and I need no one to talk to me right now. And he'll be on the verge of like getting angry and screaming and you could see he's holding himself like this, but he's still, he's not doing it. He's expressing himself and then he goes and he, and he shuts himself away for a little bit until he's feeling up to facing the world, which to me is an unbelievable thing for an 11 year old to be able to do. Um, you know, we're talking about emotional dysregulation. That's a huge level of maturity. Huge, huge level, huge. We're talking about emotional dysregulation. You know, a lot of my kids have difficulty with that. I definitely have difficulty with that. Um, but you know, another, another thing is, uh, is, um, is physical, um, um, how do you say in English? Um, uh, tactile regulation. That tactile regulation. By the way, major thing with with people with ADHD as well. I've always suffered tremendously from that. If I'm anxious, if I'm having a rough time, no one can touch me. And there's this amazing thing that my kids know to ask. 
if they see I'm having a rough time and they want to comfort me with a hug because that's that's what they want to do. They'll still be like, hey, Ima, can I give you a hug right now? Are you okay with it? Asael, my 16 year old. And I'll be like, you know what? Actually, I can't handle a hug right now. And no one gets offended. He'll be like, okay, that's fine. And later on, when everything's okay again, he'll ask me again. And, and yeah, that'll be, that'll be fine. And I think that acknowledgement and respect and understanding of where each of us struggle. My other kids need hugs. They need that. They need the, the tactile, you know, touch. I'm like, nope, someone touches me right now. They die. Um, and, uh, and, and, and having that understanding and also understanding of, of personal space and consent and agency and all of those things I think is, is really, really important and amazing. And, and the only reason that we've really been able to implement this and, and understand this is because we did a deep dive into, hey, what does this actually mean for us? How does this change our approach to the world? How does this affect our brains and where does it affect our brains? And, you know, it's hard for me because I see my oldest son still repeating those same sentences I would say to myself of, I should be able to do this or why am I being lazy? And I work really hard to counter that for him. I think it's a natural thing to feel. I think it's hard to escape it when you see everybody around you succeeding at something that you're struggling with. Um, so I'm working really hard with him on that. I'm being like, listen, it's okay for this to be harder for you. I'm not saying give up and say, oh, I can't do this because ABC. Like that's not, you're not gonna get anywhere in life that way. We could sit around feeling sorry for ourselves that we struggle more with this sort of thing than other people do. Or we could just be like, okay, it's okay that I struggle more with this. It's a given. I have to be more forgiving towards myself for struggling with this. And let's try to implement the systems that'll make it a little bit easier with the full understanding that I still might not be able to get to the point, the ease that other people approach this with. Okay, so um, you mentioned medication a couple of times. I'd like to talk about that for a minute. And I'd also like to understand um, how your medication and all the stuff that you've learned has impacted your work. Um, and then uh, we'll continue after that. So just a few more questions. Right. So meds, um, the amount of time I've heard uh, a parent say, or, or someone who, who was on Ritalin as a child say to me, oh yeah, but I won't do that to my kid because I don't want them to be a zombie and I don't want them to be disconnected and I think it's terrible for children. And I get really frustrated because um, no one should ever feel that way on, on Ritalin. Um, and I know there are some, there are some cases that are outside of the norm that like, yeah, really this isn't, this doesn't work for them well and, and nothing and whatever, fine, it happens. But overall, um, there was so little understanding when we were growing up about what this means and how the medication affects you and the signs to look for and what the, the side effects mean. Um, so a lot of people were just pushing the Ritalin and, you know, their kids, if they, their kids became more muted and that, which most of the time is what happened. And I'll explain why. Um, it, 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 it breaks my heart because that's a very, very basic sign that you are either on the wrong medication or you are taking the wrong dose. Um, and I think we are still seeing it today because doctors start everybody on the lowest dose possible when you're trying to find the right med for yourself. And they do that without explaining very often to parents what to look for or what they should be experiencing, what the, what the result should be on a good medication. And when you take a dose that's too low, that results in 
zombification, in that feeling of fog, in that disconnection, in that mutedness, um, that robotic kind of feeling. That's a low. That's a low dose problem. A high dose problem is you feel like super jittery and you're having a lot of trouble keeping your emotions in check, feeling a lot of anger, feeling a lot of, you know, difficulty. You know, these are two really classic symptoms of either a dose that's too high or a dose that's too low. And that says, hey, tweak the dose. Your kid is feeling like that. They need more Ritalin than you're currently giving them on their basic dose. Try it, see what happens. If it still doesn't work, it's possible the medication isn't the right one. There are so many different structures for Ritalin. You've got the basic stuff, which lasts three to four hours. You've got the lasting effect Ritalin LA that goes six to eight hours. You have Concerta that goes 10 to 12 hours. You know, then you have Adderall, all the derivatives of Adderall as well that are that break down differently. And it really comes down to your own personal brain and how your brain breaks down these medications. Each one of us is on something else in the house based on what worked for them. You know, I'm on the basic basic stuff, three to four hours. Why? Because the LA, no matter what dose I took, I always felt jittery, even on the lowest one. I, I, didn't, I couldn't get past the jitteriness. Doesn't work for me. Fine, the Concerta worked great, but when I came off of it at the end of the day, I felt like a rag that had been run through the ringer several times. So no, but two of my sons are on Concerta, different doses, Shimmy's on LA. You know, like it's, it really, it's, it's trial and error until you find the thing that's going to work for you. And you should feel like the best version of yourself on this medication. You should feel good on this medication. If you don't feel good on this medication, something's wrong. The med is wrong. And, 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 and there are people sometimes where they try everything and nothing really works for them. It's rare, but it happens. And then you have cases where as you grow up and kids especially hormones change things change that the med doesn't work as well anymore and then you have to start trying again and figuring out what's going to work for you and so so i i i have like such a bee in my bonnet about and it's not it's not anyone's fault it's it's um it's a lack of education on the subject it's a lack of of explanation and i think even understanding a lot of people in this country go to neurologists for adhd diagnoses and it's not a neurologist it's not in a neurologist's purview, honestly. It's a psychiatrist. It's psychiatric. It's a psychiatrist's wheelhouse to deal with this. And but there's like this stigma around going to see a psychiatrist. No, no, you know, I'm not taking my kid to see a psychiatrist. And so you end up with this situation where I don't really think neurologists have the understanding, uh, or, or they're not explaining it. No one, most people I talk to, unless they've done research on their own. No doctor sat them down and explained and said, hey, this is how this works. This, these are the results you should be looking for. These are the warning signs to look out for. And if this or this happens, come back to me and we'll, and we'll, and we'll tweak it and we'll play around with it. I have seen that with psychiatrists. I have not seen that with most people. And, um, and I get very, very frustrated about it because I think that Ritalin is a fantastic tool if you know how to use it and if you need it. A lot of people were on it and, and felt good on it and then chose to go off of it and that's that's fine but like don't you know it, there, there's a huge use for it that is incredibly helpful so from there i'm going to take you to how do you use it and what what is it how does it impact things like your work and in what way do you, when do you say this is a necessity and when do you say this is uh something that i don't i don't need right now i can get through this without it right so for me um, I, I don't only take Ritalin for work. 
Um, I find it helps me in my personal life tremendously. Also, um, it's been a huge game changer for me. Um, how my work changed when I got diagnosed is a combo of meds and understanding of where my struggles were. Um, because I started approaching my workloads differently. I started approaching my own organization differently. I started being stricter with myself. I, I hate micromanagement. I hate processes. Like I find that they clutter things up a lot, but I cannot lie that I need some processes because that's what keeps me on task and that's what helps me stay organized and, and stay on top of my own, um, on my own work. Um, so that understanding and, and kind of changing how I approached my own work and, and being stricter with myself about getting things done earlier instead of pushing things off to deadlines, et cetera, you know, like that's been a huge change in the last several years for me. Um, and it helps me down the line. It's harder for me. I, my brain has to work harder to force myself to get things done earlier. But because I've recognized that that is one of my struggles and one of my difficulties, I can force myself to kind of, and, and when I'm on Ritalin, it's far easier to do it. Ritalin, you were talking earlier about dopamine and, and neurotransmitters in the brain. This is how Ritalin works. People with ADHD have about 80% more neurotransmitters in their brain that recycle dopamine than the average Joe. Um, what does this mean? Your brain still produces the same amount of dopamine, but it doesn't stay there. It, it stays there for like a second and then your brain's like, Bye. Like, that's it. You know, so staying on task and getting yourself motivated to do things is really, really difficult. And really what Ritalin does is it blocks up those neuroreceptors for a few hours. It says, hey, any dopamine you produce for the next couple hours, it's staying there. Don't worry about it. And so when I'm when I'm on Ritalin, you know, I, I, I 45 minutes after taking it, I get that ping of just the world suddenly gets like really calm. It's really loud in here all the time, David. Like it's really loud in here. And suddenly there's just this moment of just like, like it is, it is a sigh of relief. Like I don't realize how tense I'm holding myself and how much I'm like trying to shield from the constant input of everything until that kicks in. And I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? Like, it's great. Um, and then I can sit down and I can get tasks done. And honestly, once I get myself going, if I'm mid project and I'm in the middle of work, I don't need to take Ritalin again because the, my struggle and anyone with ADHD, the, the main struggle is getting started. Once you're working, not a big deal. Then you have to finish the job, take the Ritalin again. That's, that's where you, you get to like the 85% point and you're like, oh, well, I guess I'm done with this. I'm, I'm just about done with it. So I'm never going to finish it ever because I'm just about done with it. Um, so that's that. Um, on a personal level, yeah. On a personal level, um, I struggle with getting up in the morning. I have to like, I have to like spatula myself out of bed, and, and I have to get up with kids. I have to get them out the door. And as I said before, I struggle a lot with emotional dysregulation. Um, and this was, this was life changing and eye opening for me to discover this because um, I, I. I yelled at my kids a lot um, and, uh, and, and I'd get really angry. I would suddenly get super overwhelmed and I'd snap in a moment. And a second later, I'd be like, wow, man, that, was, that was a lot. Like that wasn't called for. But in the moment, the inhibition, that stop motion, the, the lack of, you know, the impulsivity comes out and it's like, and, and I had so much guilt. Like I, I, I hated that about myself. Um, and, 
and it was something that I was really, really struggling with and I was trying very hard to work on. And I, again, that feeling of, I just kept failing. Um, understanding this, this issue about myself and what was causing it and where it was coming from. First of all, I've developed a huge situational awareness at any given moment of what's going on around me. If the house is getting too chaotic, if the house is getting too crazy, a, a warning light goes on in my brain already so that I don't give myself room for impulsive response. I'm already paying attention to how much this is affecting my brain and how much I need to keep an eye out. But I will say that I start when I started taking Ritalin, I was taking it, um, I could take it up to three times a day because I take the short, the short stuff. Um, now I'm taking it more often than not just twice a day, but there are days where I'm really having a hard time where I'll take it a third time. And I found that even off Ritalin at the end of the day, because I hadn't spent all day fighting with my brain and fighting with myself, I wasn't, I was like a live wire every night. I was so hypersensitive. I was so extremely on edge already by the time I got home from work that like it, it was it was a lost cause. And I found that even just reducing that stress on my brain for most of the day, within two weeks of starting to take Ritalin, like I was, I, I don't yell, I never yell at my kids. I haven't yelled at my kid. Like, look, there are extreme situations like where I don't know, whatever, we all yell at our kids once in a while, it happens. I don't, I don't yell at my kids. I don't shout at my kids. I haven't in years. And I've had stress, like crazy stress, but I learned a process in my brain and I learned where it was coming from. And I take Ritalin on a regular basis. So I set myself up for success, basically, by making sure that the strain on my, on my, on my, on that specific, on my emotional dysregulation part of my executive function is reduced tremendously. Um, and I know on those days where I'm having a hard time or I'm really exhausted, I will take it three times a day just to make sure that I can stay balanced at home and, and keep things balanced for my kids and make sure that, you know, that, that I'm okay. Yeah. So it seems like you've, you have created an environment in your house and through your medication and through your education and personal education and making sure your kids are aware and your kids who have ADHD, they also need to know about this. Um, I'm wondering how is that translated in, in work? Like your workers don't know about ADHD. I mean, I'm sure you've educated them. Oh. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I am sure. That yes, you've educated I have. Them. <laughs> but they work with me, David, they know everything there is to know. <laughs> but I'm curious how the environment, like neurodivergent people, people who have ADHD or autism or other other issues, uh, not issues, other um, uh, brain differences. Um, the, not every work environment is really open and, and, and loving and caring and warm and able to, to deal with that. How is that sort of trip? Like, yes, I'm sure your team knows, but how are you experiencing that out there? Like what, what, what needs to change in your mind to make, make the workforce more neurodivergent friendly? So, I, I'm really lucky because I work at Red Hat and Red Hat is like, is like the pinnacle of, you know, the, the best culture you would want to work at. Like they are, they, they have a whole community. They have a neurodiverse community, uh, like the neurodivergence community of Red Hat that has regular events and meetings. Like it's something that is very openly discussed, um, at Red Hat, um, and is, and, it, and, and, they make space for it. And there's a lot of understanding there, um, which is fascinating to me because it's not something I ever expected to find, you know, at other places I've worked. Um, 
I mean, to be fair, I was also really starting that journey of discovery and then COVID hit and I was at home most of the time. So it was less impactful on, on, you know, what was, I don't think they saw the difference as much, but, um, but, but I mean, I was, before I was diagnosed, I was always that person who kept bursting into the middle of conversations and who kept going off on a tangent and who people would be like, okay, okay, but Miriam, one, one second. And you know, that feeling that kind of carries with you when, when you're like me of, oh my God, I'm always too much and I'm always talking too much. Um, and that was, you know, previously coupled with, a, with, you know, a lack of understanding of part of why that is. Part of it is just, I am very energetic and, well, this might be part of the ADHD also, whatever, but fine. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, it's not something I've seen widely talked about at a lot of companies. Um, it's not something I've seen that's, that's you know, I think a lot of companies are be becoming more aware of needing to make space for neurodiversity and have an understanding of it. But what that means is really different based on where you are. Um, and I don't think most places are there. I think that I lucked out with Red Hat. Um, I think that, that this is a company that, um, even if someone doesn't have a deep understanding of what this means, is open to hearing about it and open to becoming understanding. Um, it's part of the culture, and um, and 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 yeah, like it's 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 something that's discussed. I mean, currently, I, I think this whole discussion between you and me uh, popped up because because I, I came to you for help about, uh, about, about uh, some of the key results or objectives we're trying to achieve at Red Hat on, on like a, a, an organizational level moving forward. And, and there's been a lot of talk of, of, you know, making people feel welcome, making space for people. And, and one of the big shifts I wanna do is, is promote a difference in how we write our emails because I don't read company emails. I get, I get these company emails with like four blocks of text in them and a ton of marketing speech. And I'm like, huh? And I can't, I can't extract information from that. I, I don't know what's happening half the time. People are like, oh, did you read that email about this and this that's going on? And I'm like, I tried, nope. Um, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm in the dark half the time. Um, yeah, um, the, the, the key result I wanted to present didn't actually get picked up in the end, but there are other key results that are getting worked on that are about neurodiversity. They are trying to, you know, make sure that, that, uh, that, uh, job descriptions, uh, for applicants, et cetera, and, and at the, and at the company are, are, are written so that they're clearer for people for, for neurodiversity, et cetera. And, and like there, there are moves in the right direction. Um, I've been very frustrated. Um, through no fault of any specific person with with part of coming up across this because as someone who's neurodiverse, as someone who struggles with exactly the issue I'm trying to, to change, um, I've also been finding that, you know, to get involved in these projects is, it, it's like anathema to how my brain works. Um, you know, like it's, it's, they start off super conceptual and vague and without, you know, I'm a person of action. I'm a person who needs really clear direction and then, and, and, you know, point me in the right direction. I'm off. I will get things done. But, um, but, but it's been, it's actually been like weirdly, I, it's been ironic because it's like, okay, well, if you want to get involved to make change, you have to get involved, but, but you have to get involved in a way that, your brain can't conceptualize at all. So 
But the amazing thing is that I've actually been super open about that with my manager, with the people who have been in charge of these initiatives. I've been like, listen, I am telling you as a person who is neurodiverse that the projects themselves are not accessible. And everyone has been opening to listen. Like they've all been open to listen about to, to that, to, to try to make change and to be there and to explain it to me. Like there's even, no one's perfect. They want to make things better, but it's not, oh, we want to make things better. And we're just going to say we want to make things better. It's we want to make things better. And if you come and you tell us that the way we're trying to do it isn't working, we want to hear that from you. So that's been, that's been very gratifying. Okay, so I, I just want to translate what you just said so that I make sure I understood it. Um, you're saying that part of the issue that you have as someone who has ADHD is that you're great at the tactical level. You're great at the maneuvers and the, the skills and the like even the techno-tactical. Like, I can get these tasks done and I can hit these goals, no problem, because I can, I can do that. But the moment you start talking to me about objectives and key results or even bigger vision and like how the key objectives sort of flow into vision and how they work together, that's already something which is like way outside of your, your, your cognitive capability because of the neurodivergent functions that structure that ADHD presents. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. So that actually, I mean, that says a lot about how someone in ADHD might be able to go up in management or in leadership because there's a functional point in management and leadership where your job is to discuss objectives and key results and be able to define those for people and there's a point where you move from management into real leadership where like we're not even going to get to the difference between those two but functionally your job is now to discuss things like strategic vision for your department and the ability to say i'm defining what vision looks like and at the same time what i find so very very interesting about you miriam is that if you don't have to do that for like a business but if you had to do that for like a book or a story that you had to tell you do that so very well. But there's a point. <laughs> there's a point. <laughs> I'm not just, I, 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 I think my main issue is I reach a point with vision where I can conceptualize vision for management. But when you couch it in, there's this thing and, and you're in academia. Let's talk about academia, okay? There's this gatekeeping element to academia where you could either just say a thing or you could sound academic while you're saying the thing in a way that no one's going to understand. You're saying the same thing, but why not strip it down and just say what you mean? And this is where I run into problems with marketing speak and 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 concepts that 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 and I and I get the vagueness. I understand where it's coming from, and I and I and I. But when I have to dig through it to find the single idea at the core, that's where I struggle, and that's where a lot of people are going to struggle. Not just neurodivergent people. That's where a lot of this is going to go over our heads, and. I've always had an issue with, and maybe this is why I'm a technical writer. We're bringing it back, David. We're bringing it back. This is <laughs> okay. one of weirdly the things that I ended up super passionate about what I do, which whoever thought I would enjoy being a technical writer, but I do. And it is that at the core of my job, it is to 
Use language to get an idea across as clearly and as simply as I can to make sure someone on the other hand, on the other end of this, who's having trouble getting something done, will be able to get it done and get the help that they need to get it done. They'll be able to look at that and say, oh, wow, this was exactly what I needed to know. My, my job, the thing I love about being a technical writer, and when you really reduce it down to the bare essence of it, is that I get to help someone who might be having a hard time with figuring something out. That's what I love to do. And I want to help them as easily as I can. As someone who didn't always get that help, as someone who still doesn't always get that help, who still has to wade through things, even with my, my, my extensive understanding and knowledge of the language, and, and, and that's my forte, it's where I live, and I still struggle with it, I want to make sure no one else has to do that. I want to help you know what you need to do. I want to help you understand what's going on. And I think that's really what I love about being a technical writer, first and foremost. And that's really cool. Um, I, I have one other question about technical writing, and then I'm going to ask my final question of the day. My one other question about technical writing is, I understand that there's levels of technical writing, like you have a junior and you're senior because you're, uh, you know, is, what is it? Senior technical writer. Um, is that sort of a way to move up in the system without needing to understand and engage in this thing of management and leadership with, you know, goals and objectives and, and vision and all those things which are so difficult is is that sort of another ranking system that allows you to get more responsibility and a little bit more authority and people will will check in with you about certain things or you might even be brought into a conversation because of your rank as a technical writer D did that make sense yes it did um so again i think it differs based on company um, most everywhere, everyone, when you're looking at technical writing in this country, at least in most places, you have junior, you have standard, you have senior, you have principal. Um, what that means based on where you work differs. Um, generally, it comes down to um, level of experience, uh, um, level of understanding of, of your topic, how much you are an owner of what you write, how involved you get. Um, you know, are you just sitting down and writing the tasks out as you get them and, you know, trying to figure things out and doing the you know basic as a junior would? Or are you really involved deeply in a team, getting involved at the at the core level, having these discussions with with subject matter experts and and sometimes finding bugs or issues because you're so involved in it? You know, it's your it's your network of of um, of how involved you are, I think. Um, I will say that that you know, to move up at least where I'm at to, to principal writer does require a certain involvement in more higher concept. You, know, you wanna get involved on a higher organizational level. You wanna get to know more people outside of your area of, of your product or your project that you're working on. You know, um, And it's part of what I'm struggling with right now exactly is because you know, I think this is the first time I've kind of run up against that wall of, hey, if I really wanna move forward and advance, I have to start dipping my toes into something that is a little bit beyond me um, and feels inaccessible in a way that nothing has before. And I think right now what I'm trying to do is figure out how I maneuver those waters to, uh, to get there. But as a senior writer, what that really means is that I know a lot of shit. Um, <laughs> I know a lot. I've, I've done a lot of different things. I've worked on a lot of I, I will step into a situation and I'll look at a piece of documentation and I'm not going to hesitate. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to say, 
no, like this, you know, I'll step out and be like, I know what I'm talking about. This is where this needs to be fixed. These are the areas that it's weak. This is what we can do to help fix it. Who am I speaking to? Finding the people, getting in touch with them, you know, owning all of this that. is crap and you need to step up. <laughs> right. No. <sighs> No. <laughs> Wait, you're not Israeli? <laughs> um, <laughs> hold on. I okay. am. I am. But I am. But I work mainly with non-Israelis right now, so I can't just come in and Israeli all over the place. Okay. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I have a question that goes with this. Do you find yourself mentoring? I did. I did actually. I onboarded um somebody for the first time ever. Um, which was terrifying, but also something I really wanted to do. Um, and onboarding at Red Hat is fascinating. It's a great system. I mean, there are tweaks that can be made, but but um, they're so invested in you, like really getting to learn for the first three months you're at the company. It's like, listen, you might get a couple tasks here, but really what we want you to do these first three months is learn. Um, and so I got to do that with someone. I got to be their onboarding buddy. Okay, but onboarding, onboarding and mentoring are not the same thing. No, but it, it, they, they're very similar at Red Hat because it's, 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 it's not just onboarding. It is, it is sitting down and it depends on who you're on. It depends on who you're working with, um, really. But there are elements that are very like mentor related. Um, and then there are elements that are more technical, but a lot of it is very like mentory, uh, start word. I don't know. Um, uh, I'm an English major. Uh, and, um, and, and, and I, I don't, I'm not like officially mentoring anybody. Um, I think I do this, I do this thing where I'm really super honest about everything and I, and I'm not really embarrassed about a lot of things and so i think that i don't directly mentor people but the amount of times i've gotten messages from teammates um after a meeting after something going on where i brought up a question or i responded to something a certain way or i was really open about something um and people will come and be like hey i just really wanted to say thank you for you know, asking that question, I didn't know, and I was too scared to ask, or you know, or 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 running things the way that you run things, or or or, or talking about things as openly as you do, and this has happened a few times. Um, I think that I, I don't directly mentor people. I I kind of I kind of like to just go out there and I don't know. I think everything comes down to I try to I, I like I want to try to make the world a better place. Um, just through kindness and openness. And so that's kind of how I live. Yeah, so it's not direct mentoring. It's kind of more, and people will come to me and ask me questions and people will come to me and be like, hey, listen, you know, I wanted to talk to you about something and see what you think, because I think I put out this persona of, you know, I am not going to be judgmental and I'm going to listen to you and and just let you tell me what you want to tell me. And I'll give you my, my advice or my personal opinion. and. But that's not, you know, any sort of pressure or, or anything like that. And, and I'm like always happy to listen and help someone if they need it. So that's kind of my that's 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 like where I live. Cool. Um, OK, so last question and then don't hang up on me because <laughs> I have something to talk about afterwards. Um, my last question goes as follows. Um, we've spoken about a lot. We've spoken about technical writing. We've spoken about ADHD. We've spoken about Dungeons and Dragons. 
Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would have really liked for us to have a discussion about? And uh, if so, what? And or is there a question that I should ask that I didn't and you could answer? That's a super dangerous question because anything I say is going to result in another 15 minute discussion. Um I have a huge range of interests and things that, that are fun. We touched on some of them. I think that, 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 I mean, we've known each other for 18 years going on 20. Um, and I think that we still learn things about each other. And I think that every time we get together, it's always interesting and it's always fun to talk and learn and, and, and hear what we have to say. So like, I, I think that, that there, there's a, there's a whole lot, <laughs> There's a whole lot, um, but I think that what we wanted to discuss, which was technical writing and neurodiversity in general, I think we mostly covered it, mostly. Like, I could go on forever, but I'm not going to. <laughs> okay, fair enough, fair enough. Um, okay, so I'm going to say thank you very much, Miriam, for giving me this time, more than we actually originally planned. I do very much appreciate it. I have learned a lot about ADHD. About I know, I was like watching the clock. Yeah. I've learned a lot about ADHD and about neurodiversity from you today. I've also learned quite a bit about technical writing that I didn't know. And I hope that these are things that will help other people who are interested in technical writing or are dealing with their own struggles with executive function and things like that. So thank you so much for coming and sharing with me. Thank you for joining us in the Doctor's Den. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Hope to see you next time.